Okay, in order for us to understand what happened to the Nazis after World War II, we first have to understand what the Nazis were. From the Encyclopedia Britannica, it is defined that the Nazi Party was a German political party of National Socialism, founded in 1919 as the Germans' Workers' Party. It changed its name to the National Socialist Germans' Workers' Party when Adolf Hitler became leader in 1920-21. The nickname Nazi was taken from the first word of its full name. The party grew from its home base in Bavaria and attracted members throughout the disinfected elements throughout Germany. It organized strong armed groups, known as the SA, to protect its rallies. During the failed Beer Hall Putsch, which uh, diminished the party's influence, and basically what that was, was uh, an attempt to overthrow the government which failed. The effects of the Great Depression brought millions of new members. And in 1932, the party became the largest bloc in the Reichstag. After Hitler was named Chancellor in 1933, he obtained passage of the Enabling Act. And his government declared the Nazi party to be the only political party in Germany and required bureaucrats to become members. The party controlled virtually all activities in Germany until Germany's defeat in World War II, 1945, after which the party was banned. Wow, our story today then tries to answer the question and how the Nazis, who ran an entire country, seemingly disappeared into thin air after World War II. And the crazy thing about it is, guess what? They didn't. They didn't disappear. While World War II has fascinated both historians and the public since 1945, we wonder what happened to the perpetrators of one of the greatest evils of all time. So let's look forward and we'll find out what happened to those crazy, crazy Nazis. There were concentration camp guards and officers. There was logistical supporters of these units. There is the war criminals who committed atrocities to the civilian populations and to the military prisoners. And there also existed the Nazis in the general population who were party members fanatically loyal to the Nazi cause. Where did they go and what happened to these guys and girls? There's a lot of truth which is not pleasant that we're gonna hear of what happened after World War II and what happened to these people. So after the Allied victory in World War II, Germany was divided into four zones of occupation. These were the zones uh, administered by the United States, Britain, France, and the Soviet Union. So you definitely didn't want to be caught up in the Soviet Union's uh, zone because it was the toughest, but uh, apparently the French zone was the lightest and easy going of the, the different zones. The Allies knew they had a problem and they had to come up with a plan to prevent the rise of the Nazi party again. So what they created was a plan called denazification. Denazification was the process of bringing the leaders of the National Socialist regime in Germany to justice and purging all elements of Nazism from public life. This was especially carried out between the years of 1945 to 1948. 
A few examples of denazification, which occurred a little bit later, up into the 19, late 1950s, was the West German government, which would have been at the time the, uh, or the West Germany was controlled by the French, um, England, and the United States, reissued all their World War II iron crosses and all the medals that they uh, issued to members of the German military during World War II. And this time when they reissued these awards, they did so without the swastika being front and center of each one of the awards. So let's look at the numbers. About 8.5 million Germans, or 10% of the population, had been members of the Nazi party just prior to World War II. Nazi-related organizations also had huge memberships. There was the German Labor Front, which had 25 million, the National Socialist People's Welfare Organization, which had 17 million, the League of German Women, the Hitler Youth, and the Doctors' League, and there was numerous others. In total, we're looking at about 45 million Germans were associated with the Nazi party out of a population of 70 million. So it was quite a large group. In addition, Nazism found significant support among industrialists who produced weapons or used slave labor. The Junkers in Prussia made use of slave labor in the operation of their factories. So denazification after the surrender of Germany was an enormous undertaking and it had many, many difficulties in the process. What do you do with 45 million people? Denazification was carried out by removing those who had been Nazi party or SS members from positions of power and influence. They did so by disbanding or rendering impotent the organizations associated with Nazism and by trying prominent Nazis for war crimes in the Nuremberg trials in 1946. The program of denazification was launched after the end of the war and was solidified by the Potsdam Agreement in August of 1945. The term denazification was first coined by a legal term in 1943 by the U.S. Pentagon, intended to be applied in a narrow sense and with reference to the post-war German legal system. However, it later took on a, quite a broader meaning. This plan was implemented to rid German and Austrian society of Nazi power and influence. The four different zones adopted different policies under the general plan of Nazification. Life for Nazis was not equal and depended on the zone that they lived in. As I referenced before, the Soviet internment camps had the poorest conditions. This caused many Nazis and supporters to attempt to flee to one of the western zones under the guise of having anti-communist sentiments. Of the western zones, French-occupied Germany was the most lenient area. In the view of the French, Germany as a whole was responsible for the war and they put less importance on classifying between Nazis and non-Nazis. In the five years following the war, about 4,000 Germans were detained in internment camps while awaiting possible penalties. This may sound like a large number, but when you consider up to 45 million 
Germans at the times were either members or supporters of the Nazi party. This is very few indeed. So we can see that very few Nazis were being held accountable. The problem with denazification was one of sheer magnitude. There had been simply too many Germans involved to process. Imagine the entire country's population standing in line at the Toronto airport. That's the kind of bureaucratic and the sluggishness we're talking about. Another issue was rebuilding Germany's economy. Skilled labor and professionals were required, but were lacking due to their affiliation with the Nazi party. According to the denazification rules, offenders were to be removed from higher ranking jobs and forced to do manual labor. However, if every Nazi and Nazi sympathizer was held accountable, there would be literally be not enough skilled workers for a functioning society. In the British zones, it found that 90% of the lawyers were Nazis, so go figure there. Since they couldn't very well have a functioning society without law and order, Britain determined that 50% of the German legal services could be staffed by nominal Nazis, but not Nazi Nazis. The French zone encountered similar problems with teachers after firing three quarters of the teachers due to Nazi influence. These teachers had to be rehired in order to have an education system. Restructuring a country while simultaneously trying to categorize and penalize a large number of culpable citizens was far from a simple process. When denazification began, Eisenhower, who was an army general at the time, estimated that the process could take up to 50 years. But by 1946, the Allied powers had handed over the reins of denazification back over to Germany. Whoa, crazy, eh? Let's have the, you know, the, the wolf in, in charge of the hen house, more or less. So, yeah, uh, Germany was now in charge of enforcing their own punishment. In March 1946, the law for liberation from National Socialism and Militarism came into effect, turning over responsibility for denazification to the Germans. Each zone had a minister of denazification. On April 1, 1946, a special law established 545 civilian tribunals under German administration. With a staff of 22,000 mostly lay judges, this would have been enough staff perhaps to start the trials, but due to the large number of new judges, it was impossible for all of them to be thoroughly investigated and cleared, which caused a huge backlog. They had a caseload of 900,000 cases. Several new regulations came into effect in the setting up of the German-run tribunals. The aim of denazification became rehabilitation rather than merely punishment. Someone who may have been technically guilty of a war crime could have their punishment mitigated due to their training and education and the need for these skills to promote the country's economic recovery. Efficiency was improved while punishment declined. A popular destination for the worst of the Nazis was South America. South America was home to many specific dictators 
who opened up their proverbial doors to Nazi officials and collaborators. 9,000 of them are thought to have escaped to South America. You gotta ask why the, the different dictators and uh, leaders in South America wanted them. Well, they're also looking for skilled labor and skilled uh, professionals to help develop their own countries. After the war, while Brazil and Chile had their fair share of exiles, Argentina by far had the most. Juan Piran, the Argentinian president, was a pretty big fan of fascism himself, especially after serving as a military attaché in the Italy during the early years of World War II. He also sought to grow his own country's power by recruiting those trying to escape Germany who had military and technical expertise. Peron and his government officials worked to create escape routes through the ports in Italy and Spain, and also aided in forging documents enabling many Nazis to leave Germany. Most of the Nazis made their way down the Pacific using falsified Red Cross passports stamped with Argentine tourist visas. Once they were in Argentina, most Nazis changed their name in order to hide their identity, but some returned living under their real names when it became clear that Argentina would not extradite them back to Germany or even if their identity was discovered. Of course, Argentina wasn't the only country to poach Nazis for their own gain. As an arms race began between the United States and the Soviet Union, collecting expert scientists and engineers be became a higher priority for their respective governments than seeking justice for the many victims of the Nazi brutality. In 1945, the U.S. enacted a program called Operation Paperclip with the intention of taking German scientists and engineers back to the U.S. to take advantage of their skills. Near the end of the war, Germany realized the need for scientists and engineers, and German scientist Banner Ossenberg created a list of identifying the names of talented German scientists. A Polish lab technician found this list torn up and thrown in a toilet, which eventually made its way back to MI6 and then to the U.S. intelligence network. The Americans used this list to identify those they wanted to target in their Operation Paperclip. So let's talk about Operation Paperclip. It was a, a secret United States intelligence program in which more than 1,600 Nazi German scientists, engineers, and technicians were taken from the former Nazi Germany to the United States. And they were taken for government employment after the end of World War II between 1945 and 1959. Conducted by the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, that's a lot of acronyms there, it was largely carried out by special agents of the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps. Many of these personnel were former members and some were former leaders of the Nazi Party. The primary purpose for Operation Paperclip was to give the U.S. a military advantage in the Soviet-American Cold War and also the space race. In a comparable operation, the Soviet Union relocated more than 2,200 German specialists and their families for their own purposes during Operation 
Osa Vaikaham on October 22, 1946. In addition to exploiting the skills of these Nazis, another goal of the American Operation Paperclip was to prevent the Soviets from gaining technical expertise from these German scientists and, and engineers. The Nazis that were targeted have useful skills, knowledge, and training, and the first country to relocate them would have the advantage. Referred to as an evacuation, Operation Paperclip identified targets who were essentially kidnapped and forced to relocate to the United States where they were held for months at a time for interrogation. In spite of this, many of these literal rocket scientists went on to have incredibly successful careers in the U.S. and were part of the NASA space program. Their participation in war crimes was overlooked when their skills and knowledge could be exploited. Not all Nazi war criminals were relocated or escaped into hiding. The Nuremberg trials began in 1946 to prosecute Nazis for war crimes, crimes against humanity and wars of aggression. These trials were important for determining international law, specifically when it came to prosecuting war crimes. The trials were also a crucial step in holding some of the most notorious war criminals responsible for the Holocaust. The first and most well-known trial indicted 24 men with outcomes ranging from acquittal to 10 years imprisonment and in some cases execution. 12 were convicted and sentenced to death. While the trials attempted to seek justice, a large number of perpetrators were never held responsible for their involvement with the Nazi movement and only 12 convicted war criminals received a death sentence. This pales in comparison to the millions that died during the Holocaust, a direct result of the Nazi regime horrific actions. Some have criticized the legality of the Nuremberg trials, calling them an example of a victor's justice and declaring the outcome judicially invalid. Other criticisms have pointed to the hypocrisy of allied nations prosecuting crimes against humanity after committing their own various wartime actions. After a few months, the allied powers gave up their denazification efforts and Germany was tasked with the cha challenge. And Germany was tasked with the challenge. All through Germany was still occupied by allied countries. Germany adopted a looser set of rules when it came to identifying and punishing Nazis. Anyone accused that was born after 1919 was considered brainwashed. Anyone accused that was born after 1919 was considered brainwashed and attempt. Let's try that again. Anyone accused. Anyone accused that was born after 1919 was considered brainwashed and exempt from any punishment. Of the public officials that the U.S. had removed from the office in Germany, 75% were reinstated. Furthermore, in order to avoid lengthy and arduous, furthermore, in order to avoid lengthy and arduous trials, 90% of the Nazis were classified as lesser offenders. 
1948, the Cold War had become a greater concern for the U.S., and any remaining cases were dealt with in proceedings that were legally sketchy at the best. But by 1951, the process was finished with little justice for the millions that had suffered. Denazification ended, and the emphasis then shifted towards paying reparations to victims and their families from pardons and amnesties enacted by the German government. Nearly 800,000 Nazis and supporters were free of any punishment or penalty. So was Germany denazification successful? That's for you to decide. At the time, 77% of the German Ministry of Justice officials were former Nazis. Post-war, some of the most notorious Nazis managed to bring Post-war, some of the most notorious Nazis managed to go into hiding and later escape Germany, while others lived their lives without being held accountable for mass murder. Other infamous Nazis were captured by Nazi hunters who made it their goal to deliver justice to war criminals who were living anonymously. Adolf Eichmann, the mastermind behind Hitler's final solution and network of concentration camps escaped to Buenos Aires, where he worked in a Mercedes-Benz automotive plant. He lived with his wife and four children. It wasn't until 1960 that Eichmann was captured by Israeli agents, drugging him and flying him out of Argentina, disguised as an Israeli airline worker who had suffered a head trauma. Despite protests for his return to Argentina, Eichmann was later tried and executed in Israel. Not all, government, all, not all Nazi hunters were government operatives. Simon Weisenthal, a Holocaust survivor turned Nazi hunter, tracked down four infamous Nazis, Joseph Mengele, Hermann Brunsteiner, Adolf Eichmann, and Franz Stiegel. Stiegel was responsible for Action 14, which was a, an order for the euthanasia program that killed those with mental and physical disabilities. After Weisenthal discovered him, Stiegel was extradited to West Germany and sentenced to life imprisonment, dying in 1971. Weisenthal himself ended up dying in his sleep at the age of 96 in Vienna on the 20th of September 2005. In the US, Jackie Pally was deported from the country at the age of 95. A historian at the US Holocaust Memorial Museum discovered that Pally had served as a guard at a forced labor camp during the war rather than working at his father's farm as he claimed in 1949. It was an unfortunate truth that not all Nazis were held accountable for their crimes. Nazi hunting is no longer practiced as most people alive during the World War II have since passed away. One has to wonder though, how many Nazis, how many war criminals were finally found by a Nazi hunter and held accountable for their horrific crimes. Sometimes justice does take time. And that's our story for what happened to those crazy, crazy Nazis. And that's our story for this episode of War Stories. 
If you've learned something new, please like the podcast and subscribe for more interesting war stories. Let us know in the comments what you would like us to cover in the future. If you feel up to supporting our channel, please go to our Patreon page listed in the episode description. Here you can enroll as a Corporal Sergeant and Chief Warrant Officer level of support. Thanks again. You have been listening to Craig's War Story Podcast.